0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Today is a special day in the life of our church. In a few moments, we will ordain and install additional officers for our church. And I believe this to be a sign of growth and strength and a vital step in our continued growth. And of course, we've got a lot of growing to do, and I believe this will help with that. Now I'm continuing to look at Romans 5, continuing our our study of it, but I want to look at it in a different way this morning than, than I typically do. I want us to look at it through the lens of our church and our mission because I pray that today, with the ordination and installation of these additional officers, that this will be a springboard for us to move forward as a church. Now, the current mission statement of our church is, if you look at the website, you'll find it there. It says, First Presbyterian Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do, whether it be worship, discipleship, outreach, all the things that we do must serve that purpose, the purpose of proclaiming, the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. All of us here at First Presbyterian Church, whether or not you're an officer, should be committed to the promotion of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be standing up to preach or teach a Sunday school class. That just means everyone's going to use their gifts for that purpose. How can we facilitate the proclamation of the gospel here in this building and out around us and throughout the entire world, for that matter. Now, what I hope to do in the coming months once we get these new guys in and start putting them to work and and as well calling upon you as a congregation, I want us to formulate a vision statement that answers the questions of how. You know, it's one thing to say, we want to proclaim Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. But how do you do that? How do you do that? There's, a, there's a, a million ways you could do that. But how can we do that? We can't do it a million ways. There are certain ways we can do it, and there are certain things that we just can't do. We don't have the, the resources. We don't have the circumstances uh, at, at this point to do everything. What can we do? So in in my mind, today gets us to the point where we can better address those how issues. More hands on deck with a clear vision of what God wants us to do as his church is the need of the hour for us. And that's where we're heading here in the coming months. As we look at the text before us this morning and in preparation for coming to the Lord's table, we reflect on this gospel we here at First Presbyterian Church exist to proclaim. So let us do that as we look at Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God Bless the reading and hearing of His Word to us this morning. Now, in these few sentences, Paul takes us to the very heart of the Gospel. Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly, says in verse 7. Christ died for sinners, verse 8. Christ died for those at enmity with God, verse 10. The death of Christ for sinners is the very heart of the gospel it is the very central thing that Jesus came to earth to do the significance of Jesus Christ is that he died for weak ungodly sinners as we are described here in this passage he died for them that they might be saved from God's just wrath now notice that Paul points to the death of Christ not his life His life was certainly important. But Jesus didn't come to simply teach us, though he was a great teacher. Nor did Jesus come to earth simply to provide us with an example to follow. You cannot save yourself by obeying his teaching and following his example. You can never do it well enough because the standard is complete holiness and perfection, if we don't meet that standard in following Christ, in following his teaching, following his example, we have fallen short and we have sinned against an infinite God and that demands an infinite punishment. Now the only thing that can save you is the death of Christ because you are a sinner. Your primary need is for someone else to pay for your sins. Paying for them yourself means that you have to face the wrath of God, and that would take an eternity. But that's what Jesus bore on behalf of sinners. There on the cross, the wrath of God, he underwent that in the place of sinful, helpless, ungodly people. And we see that when he cries out, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?' as he hung on the cross." Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. There's that substitution, Christ in our place, becoming sin, bearing our sins upon himself, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved, taking it upon himself. Now, because of what Christ has done, it is possible for us to be saved from bearing that wrath because Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and like me. That is good news. That is the gospel. That, that's great news because we don't want to bear the wrath of God. Now, there are many people today uh, in theological circles and popular circles as well who object to this doctrine. The... the Theological term for it is penal substitutionary atonement, which means that Christ substituted us and he paid the penalty, the penal penalty for our sins, and he atoned for our sins by his life, death, and resurrection, particularly his death. Some people object to it. The latest I've read about is the author of The Shack. If you've read The Shack or have gone to see the movie, you must be warned that the theology is really bad in that book and in the movie. It saddens me that a good Auburn graduate, Octavia Spencer, is acting in it, but what can you do? Their objection to this doctrine that I'm espousing here today and that we proclaim to the world is that it would be cosmic child abuse for God the Father to punish his own son in our place. The opponents to this doctrine claim it is wrong to think that humans need to be saved from the wrath of God. They say that makes God unloving. He's a loving God. He's not a wrathful God, they say. But the passage before us speaks clearly. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. It's clear in Scripture that sinners are under the wrath of God. God is a just God. He is a righteous God who must punish sin or He wouldn't be a just God, a righteous God, a fair God. All those words mean the same thing. That's why sinners face the wrath of God. But we do not as these objectors claim, present God the Father on one hand as a distant, immovable, angry deity who needs to be appeased, and on the other hand we've got Jesus doing what he has done to appease the Father. It's it's kind of a cosmic good cop, bad cop. Have you ever watched uh, those shows where you know, the two cops go in to interrogate a prisoner and one guy acts all angry and he's throwing stuff around the room and he's threatening to the, to the, uh, to the person who is, who is being accused and, and the other policeman comes in and he says, now, I don't know about this guy. He's, he's you know, you should tell me what, you know, confess, confess, and I'm, the, I'm your friend. And so good cop, bad cop, that's why they say that we preach Christ. That's not it at all. What does the text say? Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're under his wrath because he's a just and righteous God and we're sinners and he must punish sins, but he loves us and so he sends Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He provided himself the solution for our sin problem. And this is what we're saying. Humanity fell into sin with Adam. We're all born with original sin. Born sinners and we continue to sin. It's it's like a, a water fountain. You know, if you look at a fountain, not the one you drink out of, but a nice one that's maybe sitting out on Beach Boulevard in the middle of the... that sometimes spews water, sometimes not. But, you know, you've got the the sink of water in the bottom, the pool, and then it sprays up, you know, beautiful things. Well, our hearts are like that. There's sin there. We're born with it, and it comes out of us. It comes out of us. It's not beautiful. It's sinful. So we're born sinners because of what Adam and Eve had done. We continue to sin. God, being just and holy, must mete out the deserved punishment for sin. He loves us so, that God became man to bear that punishment in our place. He loves us so much that he, he did it while we were still sinners. He doesn't ask us to clean up our act so that we will be worthy of his sacrifice. No, he does it for the weak, the ungodly, the sinners, those who are enemies of his. He loves his enemies. And that's the good news we as a church are called to proclaim to the world. This is the the good news to which you are called to respond. And that's the question. What is your response to the good news? We hear news all the time, every day. More, More so than in any point in history, we can hear news from all across the world. How do you respond to the news? Many people respond to much of the news we hear with indifference. It doesn't really affect our lives directly. But this is the gospel we're talking about. This is the good news that has eternal consequences. How are you going to respond to that? The appropriate response is repentance and faith, turning from our own way, our own sinful ways, and turning to him. Eternity is at stake. The appropriate response to news is the only is to is to repent and believe. If we hear a hurricane is coming, You've, many of you, most of you have experienced that, like Katrina. When you heard that, you responded because you were in danger. And many of you, the majority of you, evacuated. You took the appropriate response. This news is that Christ has done something about your, your problem, your sin problem and the wrath of God. And you need to respond because you are in danger. And the response has to be faith. Not just simply assenting to, yes, I believe. Like I said before when we did the Apostles' Creed. It's not just, yes, I believe these things happened. I believe Jesus died. I believe that he lived, he died. I believe that he rose again. But are you putting your wholehearted trust in it? Are you resting in that? That's, that's what we're called to do. Like... Like uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, Isaac Watts says, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I owned everything, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God to love us so, what's our appropriate response in return? To give him everything, to entrust ourselves to him. It's not mere intellectual assent, but wholehearted trust. If you, are a wholehearted trusting, uh, if you are wholeheartedly trusting Christ, you can say in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Is this, is that statement your comfort? Do you know that comfort in your life and in death? If so, how will you and how will we as a church Proclaim it across the street and around the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pl- we pray that you would claim the throne of every heart here today. Melt our hearts to yield to you. Bless our church that we might be a blessing to the Gulf Coast and to the world. And as we come to the ordination and installation of these men, You and the church have called to office. We pray your blessing on it and them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.